Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Our scripture reading will be verses 1 through 9, though the focus of our thinking will be verse 2. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. And following the reading of God's holy word, we'll sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your salvation, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. We are in the fourth part of knowing how we might be delivered from our sin and misery. And it's uh, this eighth Lord's Day with two questions, but with one main theme, and that is a discussion of the Trinity. Kevin DeYoung calls the, the Trinity the most important doctrine you never think about. Uh, I once preached a sermon on the Trinity uh, years ago with the title, The Most Important Doctrine for, uh, the Most Important Truth for Troubled Times. I wish I had been smart enough to think of that myself, but uh, I was borrowing that topic from someone else. Uh, and, uh, but, it's, but it's the truth. Now, there might be some who take issue with this. Hasn't it been the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, one of those doctrines that has caused so much trouble for the church? Haven't there been battles and even wars over this truth and so much debate and so much conflict and so much division? And in part, the answer is yes. Of course, it has been the topic of a great deal of division, but it's the most important truth in the history of the church. That which makes Christianity Christian is the Trinity. Judaism affirms that there is only one God. And um, 
and, and which also Islam would affirm. There are other cults and paganism and false religions that have other, many gods, but Judaism and Islam affirm there is only one God, but it's only Christianity that <clears throat> affirms that if this one God has revealed himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's incredibly important. All of our historic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, <clears throat> all are organized in the framework of the Trinity. Augustine once commented on the Trinity. He said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. But we don't always see it, do we? Uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, continues in his thoughts. He says, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, most Christians are poor in their understanding, poorer in their articulation, and poorest of all in seeing any way in which the doctrine matters in real life. All the talk of essence and persons and co-this and co-that seems like theological gobbledygook reserved for philosophers and scholars, but certainly not for moms and mechanics and middle-class college students. And he's expressing the dilemma that we don't always see the value and importance of this. Imagine that you knew that you had 24 hours um, to live, that you knew, you knew that within 24 hours you would be dead. And you were having an evening meal with your family, with friends, your closest friends. <clears throat> what is it that you would want to say to them to communicate the most important things that are on your mind? Well, in John chapters 13 to 17, we have exactly that same situation in the life of Jesus Christ. He knew that within 24 hours, he would be dead. And there he is gathered with his closest friends, knowing that he's going to leave this world. And what is it that dominates his thoughts and his words when he's communicating to the disciples? It's the Trinity. That's what he spends his time on. Sinclair Ferguson reflects on this in his wonderful little book. <clears throat> if you've never read it, I commend it to you. It's uh, his book, A Heart for God. And in it, he writes, he says, In the upper room on the night of the Passover, Jesus decided that this great mystery of the Trinity was the teaching his disciples most needed to hear. Why was this truth so important? Because Jesus wanted his disciples and us to come to know God in all the riches and fullness of his being. He wanted us to know God in his eternal glory and to recognize how great he is. But he also wanted us to see that the God whose being we cannot comprehend is also the God who is a father who loves us, a son who came to die for us, a spirit who brings us into God's heart and who brings God's heart into our own. <clears throat> On that night in which Jesus was betrayed, he preached the doctrine of the Trinity to his disciples because he knew that in the last analysis, only the people who know their God 
can stand firm in days of trial. The rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. And as we think about this doctrine, which is a challenge, no doubt, I want to look at first kind of a definition of it or description of it, how we might understand it, what it means. Then I want to talk about where we find it in the Bible, some mentions of it, not the word itself, but the idea. And then last of all, to come back to the the thought, why does it matter? Because it's very important for us to understand. Whether we understand the doctrine, we need to understand why it matters. Because it matters immensely. But as we get into what does it mean, how do we define it, turn, get your, pick up your hymnals, if you would, and turn in the back to our companion catechism, the shorter catechism. It's on page 869. And in some of the early questions... It talks about the character of God and this truth. So page 869 of your hymnal, beginning at question four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, and equal in power and glory. And so you see in those three questions, uh, description of the being of God, the glorious being of our wonderful and almighty God, the unity of God, there is only one God, and yet the Trinity itself briefly explained uh, that there are three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. James White, in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, gives what he thinks are three pillars of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's a helpful summary. You can find other summaries in other places, but uh, let me just read his three. He says the first pillar is that there is only one true God, Yahweh, the creator of all things. So the first pillar is there's only one God. The second pillar is that there are three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he goes on to explain that a little bit, amplify it a little bit. Uh, The Father is not the Son. Uh, The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There's no confusion and no mixture. There's three separate divine persons. And the third pillar is the teaching that these three persons are completely equal in sharing in the divine being. And so those three pillars are a helpful summary of the truth of the Trinity. There's only one God. In that one God, there exists three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And thirdly, that those three persons share completely in the divine nature, equal in power and glory. And uh, the Athanasian Creed 
uh, affirms and puts it this way. Now, this Catholic or universal faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence, for the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. So two key words as we think about the definition of the Trinity is the words essence and person. Essence, as I think it's James White that says this, if when you th- hear the word essence, think, think the term godness. It's the essential character and nature of Almighty God as his, as, the, as his deity, as God himself, his being. His essence is a divine essence, the divine being. And the other word that comes in this definition is the word, the idea of person. So you have essence and you have person, person thinking of a particular distinct person. Now, part of the problem that you and I have in getting our minds around this, I think, is that when we think of the idea of a person, we think of an independent, separate being. You all are individuals. You all are persons. And yet your body is not merged with someone else. You're sitting there in your own place in that pew, and you're a distinct individual person. And we kind of import that thought into our definition of God, but it's not that way at all. In the character and person of, in the character of God, these are not disconnected persons. They are intimately connected. They're distinct, but they're intimately united and connected in the one being of Almighty God. And so we speak of one God and three persons, but not three gods, as some cults and false prophets would be would say there's another set of terms that i hope might be helpful in us thinking about this the one is the ontological trinity and the other is the economic trinity uh, the ontological trinity the word ontology has reference to being the ontological trinity is our description of god as one god in a unified being he's completely God in his, uh, in his divine nature. And there is only one God. Uh, if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is um, a great verse affir- affirming the unity of our God and the fact that there is only one God. <clears throat> and it was repeated uh, every Sabbath day in the Jewish synagogue and temple, affirming this particular truth. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here it's affirming the truth of the ontological trinity, the divine person. There's only one. Uh, and he's a divine being with that he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He's a spirit that's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, and then the other attributes that are listed in that question and answer. So we have the, the, the affirmation in Scripture of the unity of God, the, the fact that there is indeed only one God. 
Uh, now, if you go back in first, first Peter, if you want to turn back to first Peter, here we have a, a description of the economic trinity. <clears throat> that each person of the trinity has a role in the economy of redemption. So first Peter one, verse two, after referring to the elect scattered around, he says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father through the sanctifying work of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. So here we have in, in Peter and other scriptures parallel to it, a wonderful description of the economic Trinity. The father elects, the son redeems, the spirit calls and applies that redemption uh, to those who trust in Christ. So we have the work of the divine persons in the economy of redemption. And that's what the Bible reveals to us. There's one God, and yet in that one God are three persons who are active in performing the work of redemption. When we read the early history of the church, we see the battle for this doctrine and some of the errors. Arianism, which denied the deity of Christ. Tritheism, of those who claimed that it was three gods, not one God in three persons, but three <clears throat> distinct gods. And you and I have to appreciate the fact that we might get our minds start to kind of wander or we kind of get boggled essences and persons and economic trinity and ontology. What in the world? But what we have to appreciate and remember is to the early Christians, this was literally life and death. They were put to death for these truths. We might let it slide a little bit, but they didn't. And they were willing to give their life to defend this truth against all the errors. <clears throat> so where do we find some of these things in Scripture? Now, we've already read Deuteronomy 6.4, and I won't have you go to all the different passages that I'm going to read. Let me read a few, and I'll take you to a couple different passages. We have the unity of God emphasized in other places, the fact that there is only one God. <clears throat> In Isaiah 44, verse 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is only one God, only one divine person, only, only one divine, um, the one eternal God, and that's Yahweh. He is the eternal God. It's interesting in that verse you have sort of a, <clears throat> an implication of an inference of the Trinity because uh, you have uh, this, the Lord saying, uh, the, Israel, the Lord saying, the, or Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Jesus applies, I am the first and the last to himself. And so, by inference, at least, you have an anticipation of the revelation of the Son of God as, as God in that verse. <clears throat> of course, throughout Scripture, we have God as Father. In many of the salutations that are pronounced before you, 
Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That scripture we're quoting, uh, God as Father, or the Father as God is clearly revealed. Of course, Jesus Christ is revealed as God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus that he's talking about. When Jesus was in a conflict with the Pharisees and he said, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. And they said, you're only 30 years old. How could Abraham have seen your day? And Jesus makes that glorious statement before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was claiming himself the name Yahweh, the great I am. Uh, The Holy Spirit is God. Turn this I will have you turn to. Turn to John, excuse me, turn to Acts 5, Acts 5. <clears throat> this is the interaction between Peter and Ananias and Sapphira. And they had sold some property and they had given the money to the apostles, but they didn't give all the money, which was fine, but they lied about it. Uh, so that they appeared to be better givers than they really were. Uh, So in Acts 5, verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. He lied to the Holy Spirit. He was lying to God. So each of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are clearly identified as God. And yet there is only one God. And so it's in Scripture, and you and I have to appreciate that. Do we see the plurality of the Godhead in Scripture? Well, I think we do, if not always directly, certainly by inference. Turn to Genesis 1 for just a minute. And I'll give you a couple thoughts here, and then we'll move quickly to why does this matter? In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now it's not spelled out in great detail, but there's an inference at least of the plurality in the Godhead. God created the heavens and the earth. We know from John 1, Jesus created. Nothing was made that has been made except through him. And here we have also the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So is it directly stated? No. But by inference, do we see a plurality there? We do. The name of God is Elohim, which is a plural name for God. That plural probably primarily was the plural of majesty. Yet at the same time, uh, does it, by inference, help us to appreciate one God Three persons. Uh, turn to look at verse 26, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Definitive, no, but at least 
perhaps an indication. Of course, we get the clarity in the Great Commission. Go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, why does any of this matter? Whether it's clear in my presentation or not, why does any of it matter? Uh, There are several reasons why it matters. One is it matters for the glory of God. You cannot truly glorify and honor God in your worship if you don't worship him the way he has revealed himself. If you worship God in the way that you desire, in the way that you think best, you're creating an idol for yourself. You're not bringing glory to the true God. So it matters immensely because of the glory of God. It matters immensely because of uh, Christianity. True Christianity stands or falls on this doctrine. It, uh, we, we cannot build on the bedrock of truth except at this point. Thirdly, your salvation depends on this truth. It's the work of the triune God, one God in three persons, <clears throat> that is the core of your redemption. And apart from that, you have no salvation. And I want to add to the fourth point to, to this. This is so significant for your comfort. One of the things we wrestle with when we enter times of trial and difficulty is, uh, where is God? What is my identity in all this? Why am I going through this? What is God's purpose in all of this? <clears throat> How can I know there's meaning? How can I know there's, that God is at work in all this? Well, the Trinity and, and, and Peter's description of the Trinity gives us that hope. We have one God who's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And so therefore the God of yesterday is the God of today and will be the God of tomorrow. And you can depend upon him. You can rest in his faithfulness. Because there is only one God. The gods of this world are meaningless. But in the work of that one God, there is a father who loved you before he made one molecule of this world. That's an amazing thing to think about. Before God said, let there be, God loved you. What an amazing truth. That's part of the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Son was willing to stand in your place before the bar of God's just and holy wrath. What an amazing act of love and grace. That's the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit, who not only has worked to provide the scriptures for us in the writings of men, but it's he that draws your heart by the cords of love to embrace Christ, to receive the grace and mercy that comes through the Father. This is the comfort and salvation you have in the Trinity. It's absolutely critical. It matters a lot. 
And tomorrow morning, you're going to be going out into the world and who knows what you're going to face. And it's interesting that Peter, as he's writing to these uh, Christians scattered throughout the world, what does he teach to them? He teaches them the Trinity and then he sends them forth with a, with a salutation. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And that's what God wants you to experience. To leave this place and that knowing your God and that you would know that grace and peace can be yours in abundance. May that be your hope and your strength. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you for bringing us these truths that sometimes are a challenge, but we know are the core of your word and, and we have so much hope given to us in them. Help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding and may we truly honor and glorify you and may your redemptive work uh, be at work in us that we would have that grace and mercy and peace and abundance in our lives. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.